Hi there, and welcome to this latest episode of Disrupt Podcast, usually brought to you every two weeks by the team at Disrupt Africa. This time, though, we've been missing from your lives for over a month, and for that we must apologise. There was good reason, however. We were all set to hit you with a podcast three weeks ago, but then African tech, and Nigerian fintech in particular, changed the game. First flutter wave raised big, and then, as we worked on rearranging the podcast to incorporate the big news of Africa's latest tech unicorn, CUDA raised big, to further render our planned edition redundant. So blame Nigerian fintech for the delay. But we've had a rejig, chatted to Flutterwave and CUDA, and we're now ready to offer you this bumper double edition of Disrupt Podcast with all the key news, views, and interviews from the last few weeks. Let's get into it. is big and plentiful. We can't start with anything other than Nigerian payment startup Flutterwave, which closed a $170 million Series C funding round, the largest amount ever secured by an African tech startup and one that gives it unicorn status with a value of over $1 billion. Launched in 2016, Flutterwave builds modern payments technology and infrastructure for Africa to enable people and businesses to connect with the global economy. Its solution enables banks and merchants to replace multiple payment integrations with one simple API which enables processing of any form of payment anywhere in Africa. The startup is one of Africa's most backed, raising $10 million in Series A funding in August 2017, an extension round in 2018, and a $35 million Series B round in January of last year. It's now added to that funding with a record-breaking Series C, which makes it a unicorn, a major landmark for the African tech space. Hot on the heels of the Flutterwave news was an announcement from Nigerian digital banking startup Kuda, which has raised the $25 billion Series A funding round in order to help it fund its aggressive growth plan. Launched in 2016 as lending platform Kudi Money, Kuda rebranded in June of 2019 and received a banking license from the Central Bank of Nigeria to launch a full-service digital bank. It only raised its seed round in November of last year, but has already graduated to Series A with a $25 million round led by New York-based venture capital firm Valar Ventures. We'll be hearing from both Flutterwave and Kuda later in the episode. But there was still more to come from Nigerian fintech in March. Bankly secured $2 million in seed funding to accelerate its consumer acquisition and offer direct-to-consumer products to Nigeria's unbanked and underbanked populations. InsureTech startup Curacell, an AI-powered platform for claims processing and fraud management, has secured $450,000 in pre-seed funding, while Crowdivest, until now a crowdfunding platform, part of the same group of companies as agritech service FarmCrowdy, secured new investment, prompting it to spin out as an independent entity and pivot its model. There was also investment for an earlier stage fintech startup, Pay, which is focused on serving participants in the gig economy. We'll also hear from them later on. In other Nigerian news, CC Hub announced the first round of investments made by the syndicate it launched late last year, and logistics startup Quick bagged a $1.7 million pre-Series A round. Hopping over to South Africa, where we have to begin with some less positive news. Earlier in the month, Treasury announced the abolition of the Section 12J tax break for investors. The scheme, so-called because it was part of Section 12J of the Income Tax Act, was introduced in 2008 in a bid to encourage investments in startups and SMEs, riskier investments that nonetheless could help to create jobs and stimulate economic growth. It offered rebates to South Africans if they made investments through approved venture capital companies. A host of VC firms have launched such funds, including Calon Venture Partners, Knife Capital and E4E Africa, with funds still being announced as recently as February. Yet the scheme will now end in June, with the South African government saying too many people were using it as a means to invest in property as opposed to early stage companies. 
Nonetheless, one does wonder whether amending the law to close any loopholes may have been better than scrapping it altogether. But there you go. New funds, even if not Section 12J ones, continue to launch in South Africa, though. With the Halaisani Growth Fund announcing its first close at 350 million rand, almost $24 million, and revealing its first investments. Another South African VC, Havaik, announced the launch of its newest fund, which has now achieved its second close. South African startups continue to rake in the funding. Fintech startup Adumo raised $15 million from IFC, while car subscription marketplace Flex Club secured $5 million in equity and debt funding. Fintech startup Stitch announced a $4 million seed round with an impressive global investor lineup, while home loans marketplace Mortgage Market, Agritech startup Scudu, app-based delivery startup Quench, Fintech platform Nominini, and biomedical engineering company Impulse Biomedical were also on the fundraising trail. March also saw a couple of big acquisitions in the startup space in South Africa, speaking to the growing maturity of the ecosystem there. CellPal, a virtual distribution platform that provides an electronically enabled route to market for FMCG manufacturers and financial service providers, was acquired by First National Bank. An e-commerce startup Parcel Ninja, which offers cloud-based warehousing and delivery solutions to online shops, was acquired by the JSC-listed Imperial. We'll hear from Parcel Ninja later on in this bumper edition of the podcast. A positive few weeks in Kenya also, with rounds for solar irrigation startup Sunculture, retail tech platform powered by people, fundraising platform Raise, trucking logistics marketplace Amitruck, and agency banking as a service provider Tanda. Meanwhile, the Kenya-based Savannah Fund launched its $25 million Africa Tech Seed Fund. In Egypt, there are rounds for retail tech startup Wheelo, e-health startup TakeStep, food ordering and restaurant aggregator platform Coins, and e-commerce platform Zedvendo. While a busy period in Ghana saw investments for EdTech and recruitment platform Stars from All Nations, Agritech startup Complete Pharma, and e-health platform Redbird. The Tokyo headquarters Uncovered Fund has launched with a targeted size of $15 million and confirmed its first five investments in African tech startups. Those companies were Skygarden and Leapalater from Kenya and RxAll and Send from Nigeria, as well as Togolese's super app Gozem. Nice to see startups from outside the main tech markets on the continent bagging investment, and this was a bit of a trend over the last few weeks. For sure. Moroccan real estate portal Mubawab raised $10 million to accelerate its expansion in the Maghreb region and develop its technology. And Cameroonian fintech startup Diol raised $3.5 million in funding to scale operations. There are also rounds for Ethiopian fintech ArifPay, Angolan crowdfunding startup Dea, Ivory Coast-based transport platform Mojoride, Ugandan energy startup Knugrid, and DRC-based solar company Nuru. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean agritech startup Farmheart secured $100,000 in grant funding after being selected as one of the winners of the annual Holt Prize competition. And 10 African tech startups that took part in the Y Combinator Winter 2021 batch pitched to an audience of investors and other interested parties at a virtual demo day. A great month indeed, but one definitely dominated by the Flutterwave round, which makes it one of Africa's first tech unicorns. I caught up with the startup CCO, Ifeolua Orioki, to hear about the round and the company's plans for the future. So let's start with the exciting news you brought the ecosystem this month, a 170 million funding round, which has bumped you to unicorn status. Congratulations. What a huge landmark. Can you just take us through how the round happened? Uh, thank you so very much. Um, excited to be here. Um, obviously, in terms of how the round happened, I think it's more about how the journey's happened so far. 
Uh, and it's really just started from, you know, our decision to look at Africa uh, as one piece versus, you know, the different regions, different countries. And what we've decided to do was look at solutions that would integrate the different payment types uh, and find solutions that people would ultimately love. Uh, and it's one that, you know, has really found market fit. And it's a story that... Um, it's a story that we've grown this far, and, and it's only right now that, you know, the investors have, have come, right? Uh, I, th I think building that story and focusing on our vision is what has brought us here. Um, you know, how the round went, it went fairly quickly, um, and it's not the first time that we're raising capital, obviously. Um, but at this stage, obviously, what we're looking at was the, the value proposition from our investors. Um, if I compared it to, you know, rounds before now, uh, where we're looking for capital to scale. Uh, right now, we're looking for capital to scale, but also partners that were very much aligned uh, to our goal. This is something that was the most critical piece in looking at the different offers uh, that came. And then obviously, ultimately, we got them. So we're, we're excited about that. And was there anything particularly um, unique or different about this round? Or can you take us into the uh, behind the scenes a little bit of how this specific round came to light? Um, I, I would say behind the scenes, it's the sort of strategic conversations that we had. Um, it was less about, you know, the valuation. It was more about, you know, investors who were very keen on helping us scale the business, investors who were very keen on opening specific doors, uh, investors who really understood and were trying to understand the path that we have seen uh, in Africa and years and years beyond uh, the immediate that we see. Uh, that's really what was unique. Uh, it's the quality of the conversations. It's the quality of the investors, including you know existing investors who participated. But it's really just the alignment uh, of of both ourselves and our investors to the goal that we now have uh, at hand. And how does it feel to be, depending on how people define it, either the first or one of the first African tech unicorns? <laughs> Um, I, I think that uh, obviously it was it was awesome uh, when I got the call uh, when we shared it with members of the team when we told the entire team um, it was absolutely awesome to have that feeling but I think as soon as that feeling came um, I think you know we reminded ourselves and I told my team and I'm sure that other leaders within the organization told the teams uh, it's not the challenges ahead. Right uh, now, we've got greater goals. We've got greater objectives. We've we've got bigger things to do. Uh, and now let's just let's just hit the ground running. Um, in ter in terms of, of of being the first, you know, um, I think we would have hoped that there were many more firsts before us, um, because that would indicate that the continent uh, and indeed you know business is growing uh, at a very good rate. Um, but Africa is still growing as a continent. Uh, and it means that, you know, being a unicorn now comes with responsibility uh, to borrow from Spider-Man and so many other people with great you know, power comes great responsibility. Uh, so our responsibility now is to take the future of payments as Africa as our sole responsibility uh, and truly look at a situation where we connect Africa to the world and the world to Africa. You've preempted my next question a bit of. What are the company's plans now? Like, how do you move forward? How do you take it to that next level? What's next? I think what's next is quite clear to us. Uh, our vision is simplifying payments for endless possibilities. Uh, and it's now looking at the different endless possibilities that exist um, in every aspect of the business, every aspect of different industries. Uh, endless possibilities to us means 
are pushing the band and pushing the limits with improved customer experience. It means pushing the limit with product development. It means expanding everything that has to do with the company, our people, um, but everything catered and tied towards our vision. Um, ultimately, it means expansion into North Africa. Today, we're, we're more sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so it's looking at North Africa. It's looking at adding more countries within the regions that we already exist in. Uh, and it's really just about tying everything together. Um, that's, that's what's next for us. The vision is quite clear. And I think that's our North Star. Uh, so whether it's this round or the rounds before, we're following that North Star, uh, which is simplifying payments in every way, shape and form that we can think of. And it's for endless possibilities for our staff, for ourselves, but most importantly for our customers. And you've touched upon this uh, slightly already, but Flutterwave has already been um, has always been a, a well-funded company compared to other African startups. What do you think sets it apart so that you've always had that interest and backing available to you? I think, you know, similarly to, to what I said earlier, where we would have loved to have so many firsts, um, I, I think as a, as a company, we shy away and as a person, uh, we shy away from being compared with other startups uh, because it's important for us that everybody wins. Uh, because we're very ecosystem driven, which is why we're also very African driven. We're not looking at one region in Africa. Uh, it's the entire continent. Um, but it goes back to what I just mentioned, which is our North Star. Um, our vision uh, and our mission is very, very distinct. It's quite clear, but it's also very big. Um, it's not easy for people who understand the African payment space and the continent as a whole to unite you know, different regions, different economies, uh, different cultures. Uh, under, you know, and different regulatory frameworks as well into a single product. Uh, it comes with so many moving parts uh, and it's such an audacious goal. Uh, and that is, I think, where I would start from. I think something that has worked well for us as well is around execution. Um, I mean, I'm sure many people have heard it before, but execution is key. We're looking out for our customer all the time. Um and so if a customer says to us, and I remember this was in, in, in one of the countries that we expanded to in East Africa, um, it was further down our roadmap, but a customer said to us, you know, they had it further uh, closer on their roadmap. Um, and what we did was immediately started making provisions for that. Um, we didn't say, you know what, uh, wait a minute, it's, it's not on our roadmap right now. Uh, immediately we were able to, we started to make plans for it. Uh, and, I, and I think that makes us stand out. Uh, and if I'm able to tie it all together, the most critical piece of why we stand out is our people. Um, the people, it's the people that, you know, help us stand out the best. It's the people that are executing. It's the people that are carrying that mission and running with it. You know, uh, that's what sets us apart. And I think when we tell our stories uh, over, over the years, as we have, uh, investors are able to connect to it, uh, connect with us and what we're trying to do. Uh, and I think that's what's, uh, you know, worked in our favor. So you've, you've covered your, your strengths and what has really worked for you. Um, can you touch upon what you think has maybe hindered you over your journey so far? Have you met any challenges or have you felt any uh, kind of shortcomings that you, you've had to address? No, I, I think that's, that's standard for every business, uh, not only, you know, uh, because we are working um, in Africa or we're working across uh, different countries and different borders, uh, but just because we're a young company and we're growing. So obviously uh, you run into challenges, um, you know, as you grow your business. Uh, instead of saying they were, you know, uh, challenges or impediments, I think it was more around 
learnings that we have picked up along the way, uh, especially you know when you're launching a new country, understanding the nuances of that market, understanding the regulatory framework of that market, uh, and so maybe sometimes along the line, you know, we've had to take a step back and ensure that we have really covered our our bases with that. Uh, but I wouldn't say that those things have been challenges. We've not gone through any challenges separate from what, uh, you know, even the SME is going through, right? Thinking about putting the right structures in place, having the right people in place, ensuring that different arms of the business are working, uh, you know, in synergy and ensuring that there are efficiencies. So I wouldn't say that we've, you know, gone through any uh, specific challenges uh, in that regard, maybe because of the size and of what we're trying to build uh, and how far we've come. We've seen a bit more, a bit faster than other than other uh, people would have seen. Uh, but I would say they're just normal challenges in the course of running a business and trying to grow a global business. How much time would you say you've dedicated uh, towards fundraising and why has this been such an integral, important part to your business model? I mean, capital and 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 uh, and funds being available to deploy the vision and execute are are absolutely critical to any company, uh, more so our company, given uh, the speed at, at 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 which we're growing. And when you think of the pace of the expansion that we've seen, uh, we've gone from one country to to five overnight to thirty, right? Uh, and this is across continents as well. So when you think of the speed, it's absolutely important that we've needed to fundraise along this path to ensure that, again, we're not allowing capital be an impediment or a challenge to, you know, driving this train along. Um, but I wouldn't say we've dedicated so much time to fundraising. I think many times uh, young entrepreneurs can get carried away with it uh, because it's quite an a, a arduous task and it's quite something that you need to focus on when you do do it. But I wouldn't say we've, we've spent a lot of time focusing on fundraising. It's been important to us. Uh, but we spent a lot more time focusing on key metrics that, you know, naturally make our fundraising work. We focus on our customers, the things that make our customers happy, uh, looking at the right business metrics. Uh, and, and and that makes the fundraising a lot easier. It makes it makes the story a lot simpler to tell. Uh, and it makes it a lot clearer as well. Uh, once those things are, are clear uh, to the investors, then it, it becomes a, an easier conversation. So we have spent some time doing it, but I wouldn't say we have dedicated so much time uh, to doing it because many times you can do that and neglecting the more important piece of the business, which is the customers that are the lifeblood of the business. Right. And just for the, the startups listening from a nuts and bolts perspective, how many and who of your team um, would be dedicated towards fundraising? And, and if you can give us a percentage of hours or days of the week or um, a metric of you think how much time it has taken um, over the years for those people to do do the fundraising process. Um, in terms of the team, um, we it, it's an all hands on deck uh, situation where we have everybody you know in, in the in the senior management team uh, play their role in having those conversations. Uh, I take commercial conversations, um, operations conversations, technical conversations, operations conversations, um, legal conversations. So everybody plays their role. Uh, in it. Uh, and many times, again, because we're not all speaking at the same time, we're able to navigate uh, that landscape properly. But in terms of specific hours per day, I wouldn't be able to say, you know, in terms of specific hours per day. But um, our fundraising round, if I use this one, uh, was was quite fast. We we didn't spend, you know, uh, more than a few, a few months doing this. Um, and, and so if I think of that from that perspective, 
um, again, I would say that everybody just plays their role, but not in terms of necessarily hours a day and that sort of thing. If you look at your fundraising journey over the years, would you say that the conversations and the processes involved get shorter as time progresses or is it the opposite that actually as you hit more complex levels of your company, the conversations are getting more in-depth and more difficult to navigate? Um, if you're talking about a, a fundraising question in terms of as, as we go along the lines, are they getting more difficult? From that perspective, no. Uh, I think as we continue to grow the business, uh, there's a lot more clarity about a lot more parts. Uh, the, the reality is we also have a lot more data points than we had in earlier rounds because, again, uh, we have market uh, product market fit and we're seeing the business grow. Uh, so we have a lot more talking points uh, and the conversations, are, in my, in my opinion, are getting uh, easier. And so what impact do you feel or hope that your emergence as an African unicorn will have on the wider tech space? Um, I, I would say that, you know, everything runs on payments, um, whether it is a logistics app, whether it's an investment app, whether it's a savings app, uh, whether it's an e-commerce app, uh, everything runs on payments. It all comes down to payments. Um, and our growth uh, and expansion is, I think, is a game changer for the startup uh ecosystem i think you know a lot is happening on the african continent in terms of you know the growth of startups uh, across different industries so I, I would say that you know we the the impact that we have is obviously we hope to be um, a catalyst as well um, it means that today uh you know the ecosystem can attract high-powered enterprise companies like uber like netflix like facetime uh facebook you know um and hopefully bigger, bigger uh, and more companies are coming into the ecosystem. Uh, so ultimately, I think that that's what the impact will be uh, in terms of this. Uh, and, and hopefully we can see uh, even more growth uh, at an even faster pace from, from the ecosystem. And looking more broadly at African fintech, specifically at Disrupt Africa, at least I imagine others well have been expecting the space to produce the continent's kind of first wave of unicorns. Um, but from where you stand right now, what do you see the potential of African fintech is? Um, I, I would say that, you know, the ecosystem currently serves a, a population of more than half a billion young people. Um, and I would say that these are uh, uh, young people that are increasingly becoming more tech savvy. Speed at which technology is permeating through the ecosystem and the continent is, 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 is amazing. Uh, and I think that what it means is that there is tremendous potential for uh, current and future growth, uh, both of digital payments, uh, uh, transfers in the continent, uh, and just generally across, you know, uh, the different fintech, whether it's robo-advisors, whether it's savings, whether it's insurance, whether it's lending. I think there's just tremendous potential for growth. Um, and when you think of the uh, mobile rate, uh, penetration uh, rate, it's one of the highest across the, across the continent, across the world, uh, if not more. Uh, you start to think and believe that Africa FinTech will continue to grow. That is definitely what I expect. Uh, and I think that we will still see many unicorns to come uh, from the continent. That's uh, how I see it. The tech boom is, is real and it's growing. Uh, and Touchwood will see a lot more unicorns coming from the continent. Um, so our upcoming fintech report due for publication in June is going to be open sourced. It's really great to have you on board. And can you just tell us from your perspective, uh, why are you supporting a drive for open and free ecosystem data? Um, uh, for somebody like myself, uh, with the background that I have, I'm a very numbers driven person. 
um, data is the new oil. Uh, data is extremely important for every part of a business, uh, every part of an ecosystem, every industry, uh, no matter the, the resource that you're looking at. Data is absolutely key. And anything that provides that a platform uh, for businesses to be able to thrive is something that we would definitely support 100%. there on Flutterwaves Round and what it means for the wider African fintech ecosystem. As already noted, it was quite the month for Nigerian fintech, with the Flutterwave news swiftly followed by a major Series A announcement from Digital Bank Cuda, just a few months after its $10 million seed round. Tom chatted to Ryan Laubscher, Cuda's COO, on what the investment means for one of the continent's fastest growing companies. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Very good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So obviously the recent news was the 25 million Series A round. Um, just take us through how that round came about, uh, who the investors are, and what the what the investment is for. Yeah, sure. Um, the lead investor is a group called Velar Ventures, um, who are based out of uh, New York in the States. Um, obviously, uh, quite a high-profile group. Uh, Peter Thiel um, is one of the founders of that our particular group, um, and they basically approached us, I, I suppose it was about uh, three or four months ago, um, with an interest in providing some capital. Um, you know, at, at the time, um, we had been growing so fast over the previous uh, 10 or so months that, that we, we felt, given the economic uh, outlook uh, globally, which was, which was and remains, I suppose, fa- fairly, fairly clouded, um, it was a good idea to uh, to buffer our reserves in terms of making sure we had capital available. Um, and it was also probably the right time to raise just in terms of our growth ambitions. So so it was um, gratefully received that they're a fantastic, high-quality group. Um, and we, we had one of our existing investors, Target Global, who, who also um, allocated in the round. So we feel now we've got the, the, the right amount of capital to pursue the aggressive growth plans that we have set for, for ourselves over the next 12 months. And what are those growth plans? I mean, you yourself are speaking to us from Cape, from Cape Town. You're involved in new products rollouts. I mean, what, what does the next 12 months hold for, for CUDA? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, the, the, the company is barely two years old. Um, so we have experienced growth that, 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 that I suppose has even caught ourselves by surprise. But, um, you know, we need, to, we need to flesh out our product suite um, currently you know, we, we we have we have some strong transactional products, but we need to we need to expand into uh, various credit products. We're building a team here in Cape Town, South Africa, that's made up of um, largely ex-Jumo um, employees who um, focus on decision science, the data science, the credit risk, uh, fraud, um, and so we're building out that function in collaboration with a lot of the employees that we have uh, in, in in Lagos, Nigeria, who are going to be who are going to be assisting in that on that side of things. Um, we, we also need to buffer out some of our senior positions. So I suppose uh, some of the capital is going to be used to, to, to recruit very high caliber, uh, experienced senior, senior leaders uh, across the various functions where we think it's the right time to be um, uh, hiring into those functions. Um, and and, and just, to, just to provide the, the, the company with the fuel for the growth that we, we feel um, is, 
is largely lying ahead of us. Um, you know, customer service is a, is a, is a key area that we're looking to, to, uh, um, to, to, to provide uh, capital into. You know, I suppose if you're looking at a bank, a new bank, the first thing you want to try and do is establish a sense of trust with your customers. And trust can be, can be done by providing people with uh, excellent products and services, which they find extremely useful and, and, uh, and, and tailored to their own personal needs and capabilities. But it's also about making sure that if there are any issues, um, we are, we are uh, able to assist our customers uh, as, in as close to real time as possible. So the real driver for us is to build trust, uh, which hopefully builds a deposit base. And with the deposit base, we should be able to um, you, you know, start looking at various uh, new credit products that we are that we're currently working on. Um, that that's, that turns us essentially into a real bank at the end of the day. Yeah, talking about the the bank side of things. I mean, that's sort of your um, how you're sort of touting your products. I guess is to, you, you want to become a full service digital bank, which I mean, it, it sounds sounds simple, but I imagine there's a, there's a hell of a lot of uh, a hell of a lot that needs to go on behind the scenes in order to make that happen. I mean, just to, to talk me through the process of going from being a one vertical only fintech startup to being a full service digital bank. And is that something that could happen in a couple of years or is that something that really is more of a five to 10 year roadmap? No, it's, it's definitely something we can do in a couple of years. And in fact, you know, we're looking to have both sides of the balance sheets in terms of assets and liabilities in place um, quite, quite soon, at least within this year. Um, it's, you know, at the end of the day, we, 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 we've got to keep it simple. Um, you know, we've got to provide, um, we've got to provide um, a way in which people can, can deposit their capital. Uh, we've got to provide a user interface that is, that is beautiful to use, that people just love using, that is seamless, that is efficient, that strips out a lot of the, you know, the, the, the parts of banking that's made, that, that I suppose make, puts banking alongside going to the dentist. Um, so we, we're trying to make it a really user-friendly experience where you can bank seamlessly, where you can make payments seamlessly, where you can transfer capital seamlessly, and where you can access you can access credit products that are appropriate for each individual's needs and capabilities. Um, you know, we go, and that's and that's a lot of what our uh, the guy that the team we're building um, here in Cape Town are going to be focusing on is 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 heavy usage of data, um, so that we can we can really build smart products that are. Um, that should feel like a bespoke suit to people who are actually using them. Um, and, you know, that, that's from an individual perspective, at least initially, but we do have ambitions um, to, to, to launch various SME-focused products as well, which, uh, which we feel would be, are going to be very appropriate uh, for the marketplace. Um, you know, I suppose one of the things that you might, your listeners might find interesting is that the data is currently showing that, um, you know, it's highly likely that there, that there are a range of sole proprietors currently using our um, our system um, for their for their for their business needs, uh, just because even even from a business perspective, um, you know, you, utilizing an individual account with CUDA is 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 basically enabling them to run their businesses better. Um, so we, 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 we're going to focus quite heavily on on building up that side of our product suite as well to make sure we have you know, really powerful products for businesses to use. All right, fantastic. I mean, you only announced your seed round in November. November of 2020. That's now a Series A round in March. I mean, at that rate, you'll be on to Series B by what, like May, June. Um, I mean, how much more investment are you going to be seeking over the next few years in order to to fulfil your ambitions? Yeah, look, I, I think we, you know, we we're not going to. Um, 
I suppose I'll put it like this. We, we, we had more capital available to us in this current round than we actually took. So there's, so there's, so there's capital that we, that, that we have on the sidelines that is definitely keen to be part of a, a further round. But it's, 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 it's very much aligned with what we think we're going to need. So we don't want to be raising, number one, too much capital. It just, it's just latent in our bank account. Uh, and number two, we, we, we want to make sure that the valuation that we're raising at uh, is appropriate and commensurate to you know, the, the, the metrics that we're generating in our business. But, but I, I, I think you know, it's important to make sure that as we need capital, as we need to be spending uh, capital on, 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 on R&D around making sure we are building incredible products and providing amazing customer service to our customers, that we have that capital available to us. So it was, it was, it was a combination of just, you know, to our mind, uh, it was the right time to be, to, to be doing a, a second raise. And, and when Velar uh, came along and offered us the capital, they are the type of investor that we, you know, we would dream of having prior to them initially approaching us. So, so it was the right time. It, it's it's, it's the, the right investors. And when the, you know, further down the line, if we need to raise again, we've certainly got, um, we've got investors on the sidelines who are quite keen to take part in, in, in the next raise. You're a big part of a very positive trend going on at the moment um, uh, with regard to African and particularly Nigerian fintech ventures raising capital. Obviously, um, Flutterwave, the big news from the other week and um, late, late last year, the Paystack acquisition by Stripe. We've got guys like CarryWise that have raised. Um, what's so attractive to particularly the Nigerian, about the particularly Ni- the Nigerian um, fintech space to investors at this moment in time? Look, I, th- I think it's it's, you know, largely Africa, you know, from, from talking to our investors who actually put capital into the, into the latest race, they, they see it as the sort of final frontier um, of untapped opportunity. Um, so you've got, you've got a combination of there just being vast opportunity throughout the continent, let alone Nigeria. Um, but you're also starting to see um, the, 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 the regulators um, becoming a lot more supportive in terms of um, fostering um, entrepreneurial growth, fostering uh, initiatives that are that, that have the customer's best interests in mind. Um, so I think the combination of those two things has been has been a powerful um, boost for us and for companies like us. Uh, but you, 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 I suppose, you also have an instance where a lot of the um, the sort of seed level funding that 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 hasn't really been uh, there for African startups is now actually starting to become a lot more visible. So. You know, in this latest round, we, we, we announced a $25 million raise, which is what essentially um, ended up in our bank account. But the entire raise was, was closer to $39 million, uh, because the, the, the incoming investors bought out a lot of our smaller investors who, who supported us from a very early stage, you know, in the, in the, in the sort of seed rounds. So I, I think it's, it's vital to have, to have that layer of seed investment community um, interested and investing in African startups, and it certainly allows companies like ourselves um, to, to to start to uh, produce in, inroads into whatever we're working on. And and you know, once that takes place, um, you, you've got an instance where you start to attract interest from from, from bigger investors who, who invest later on in the in, in the cycle. Yeah, you mentioned the earlier stage investors being bought out. I mean, the one thing that the African startup space has been lacking over the last few years is um, is exits. And obviously, though though you haven't, um, Kuda has not been acquired or listed and Flutterwave has not been acquired or listed, we have actually seen some very 
a high X returns for, for early stage investors in those two businesses and um, and also in, from the Paystack deal towards the back end of last year as well. I mean, what kind of um, high value landmarks are those exits and what, what, you know, what, what do they say to people that were perhaps on the fence about investing in African tech until now? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, 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 um, I think it's still very nascent, quite frankly. Um, I don't think there are too many uh, data points of large exits that have taken place. But, you know, I, I think that's going to change. You, you, we've got, I think there's a whole bunch of things that are happening right now in Africa. You've got, I think, a lot of the diaspora. I mean, one of the things that I've been so impressed with is the quality of the, of the staff that we have at CUDA. I mean, these are very... Uh, highly educated uh, individuals who've come back from overseas to be part of this this this, this new wave of uh, entrepreneurial growth in Africa. So you've you've got you've got incredible talent. The opportunity set, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is incredible. Uh, Africa as a continent has a median age, I think, of around eighteen or nineteen years old. You've got a proliferation of of technology um, that is. Uh, that is spreading far and wide, that the actual devices that people are using are, be- are becoming cheaper and cheaper, uh, which, which is giving people further accessibility. Um, so I think if you combine all those factors together, um, if you have the right teams, if you use your capital intelligently, if you've got the right support from, which is, and this is one of the critical areas, from the regulatory bodies um, behind you, um, and at the end of the day, quite simply, if you have a great product or service that is that is meeting um, a need um, of, of of customers, and I, and I truly believe that that's what that's what sets you know CUDA and a new bank apart, you know maybe from some of the European uh, banks which we hold in very high esteem, but you know the the the, the, the banking system is ripe for for, for for disruption in terms of. Um, the quality of products and the quality of customer service that people are going, going to be able to uh, access. So, if you look at New Bank in Brazil, um, I suppose that's that's the that's the company that we really, um, you know, see, see see ourselves wanting to emulate. Um, I think very similar market conditions, very similar conditions in terms of the accessibility that customers had uh, for banking products and services. Um, and they've done an incredible job, and they built a real bank. And you know, the bank is accessible through an app, and and that's what we're going to try and do. But to answer your question, I think they're going to be, you know, not just neo banks like ourselves. There are plenty of of really innovative technologies that are taking off all throughout Africa. Um, so I think over the next ten years, and I think that's you know largely why investors are moving into Africa. I think this is where you're going to see some of the really big exits coming out, where 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 people are building products and services for for large populations. Ryan there on CUDA's plans post-Series A and its evolution into a continental powerhouse in much the same way Flutterwave has become one. Both of these companies are partners on a new initiative from us at Disrupt Africa, in fact. We're making Finnovating for Africa 2021, the third edition of our deep dive into the continent's fintech space, free to all as part of an open sourcing initiative. Every two years since June 2017, Disrupt Africa has released the Finnovating for Africa publication, which tracks the extraordinary development of the fintech ecosystem across Africa over the last few years. Previously available for sale, the report is purchased by leading tech companies from Africa and the rest of the world, big four consulting firms, banking and fintech leaders, VC firms, supranational investors and international trade bodies. In June 2021, however, Disrupt Africa will make the edition of Finnovating for Africa open source, 
meaning the data and analysis contained in its pages is accessible for those for whom the information is most valuable, African entrepreneurs. This follows on from the success of the recently released African Tech Startups Funding Report 2020, which was made available for free for the first time in January and has so far been downloaded more than 2,000 times. We're making Finnovating for Africa free to all with the help of various partners, key among them Flutterwave and Greenhouse Capital, a Lagos-based fintech investment company. Our other partners include MFS Africa, TrueID, Demars, Jumo, Abjal Communications and CUDA. Here's what a handful of our esteemed partners had to say about their involvement in this initiative. Here's IO from Flutterwave. Data is the new oil. Uh, data is extremely important for every part of a business, uh, every part of an ecosystem, every industry, uh, no matter the, the resource that you're looking at. Data is absolutely key and anything that provides that a platform uh, for businesses to be able to thrive is something that we we'll definitely support 100%. And here's Ruby Nimka, principal at Greenhouse Capital. Accessing reliable tech ecosystem data, insights and in-depth analysis is often such a challenge across a continent. And any reports tend to be costly and inaccessible to those who actually need it most, African entrepreneurs. That's why this year, in a move to democratize access to high quality data and to continue demonstrating the incredible potential of the continent, we at Greenhouse Capital are so excited to partner with Disrupt Africa for their first open source version of the Finnovating for Africa report. And here's Ryan from CUDA. We at CUDA are delighted to be working with Disrupt Africa, um, who is producing quality data and research, such as their publication, which is providing the, the data and research, which is crucial for founders building businesses in Africa, which up until this point in time has been extremely expensive for founders to access. So the ability to access this quality and caliber of research is essential for the growth that we forecast to take place in Africa. And we commend Disrupt Africa for, 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 for the strides that they're taking on behalf of founders throughout Africa. Flutterwave and CUDA are well on their way to becoming continental powerhouses, but now we turn our attention to one of those startups still at the very beginning of their journey. Pay was founded last year to leverage AI and big data to offer tailored financial products to gig economy workers. The platform offers both new and existing gig workers or freelancers the ability to seamlessly save their income and receive in-kind loans through a buy-now-pay-later model tied to their trade. There's strong potential for growth here, given the advance of the gig economy across Africa, and to help it scale more quickly, Pay recently announced a round of pre-seed funding from a strong list of investors. Tom chatted to co-founders Tatenda Farusa and Sanmi Akinmuziro to find out more. So tell us a bit about Pay and how it came about and what it's achieved so far. All right. So, yeah, Tom, uh, it's, been, it's been quite a, quite a whirlwind journey. Um, Sami and I met at a company called Celluland, which is a, one of the largest payments companies. And we, we struck a strong friendship and bond around doing something together in fintech. Um, fast forward to today, I left Celluland July last year uh, in Kenya and Sami left Celluland Nigeria in mid-2019. And we came together around how can we offer financial services to micro uh, SMEs and micro entrepreneurs, i.e. gig workers. Um, so yeah, it's been a roller coaster journey. Uh, been fundraising for about a year, and we, we finally closed our round last week. Um, and yeah, we're looking at a, a very exciting year ahead in terms of powering financial services for gig workers. So yeah, we're we Pan African fintech guys, and we've joined at the hip now around 
solving the big problems in the gig space uh, across the continent. Um, and what has Alipay achieved so far in terms of uptake and users? Um, so, uh, uh, thanks, Tom. It's really been interesting over the last one year. Um, we spent the earlier part of those um, of the last 12 months setting the rails, uh, making the connections to different uh, platforms across Africa, uh, particularly in Nigeria and Kenya, uh, within the gig segment. And um, we've been able to um, unlock an addressable base of close to 500,000 gig workers. Uh, of course, it's early days for us, and what we're doing now is mining uh, what we have, um, but very happy to be connected to gig platforms across the different gig segments, um, including Ride Ailey, uh, Blue Collar, um, uh, White Collar, uh, and we're looking to even connect to more platforms as we, as, as we proceed into, into the year. Um, our target for the year is just to convert those gig workers that we have acquired through our relationship um, and, and convert them into um, pay, uh partners and customers um, in the next 12 months. Um, so for us, we've achieved um, um, connection to global, regional, and local gig platforms, and we have an addressable base of close to 500,000 gig workers uh, today. Fantastic. So tell us about funding, how it came about, and uh, what you've raised it for. Great, Tom. Yeah, so it's, it's something that uh, even in my LinkedIn post and Sami's as well, it's, it's a challenge and it's quite difficult to fundraise on the continent. Um, if one was to even expound, you know, it, it's full of potholes, landmines, uh, and it's a maze, right, to figure out who is the right investor for your company at that time. And what we quickly found is that if you have an idea on a piece of paper, very difficult to get even a dime. So our journey began, um, you know, from this gig space, you know, interactive gig workers who we heard and understood have problems with loans, savings and insurance where they're underbanked or neglected. And we, you know, rallied each other, myself and Sami and the team um, and, you know, initially struck a partnership with Safe Border in Nigeria and Ibadan. And from there on, we were able to to family and friends um, where we raised about $50,000 which enabled us to have a, a proof of concept and early traction. Um, along that journey, I think we, from start to date, we probably pitched some, maybe 40, 50 um, different entities across the world. Of course, COVID did not help uh, accelerate uh, discussions or cause some risk initially, um, but through perseverance and being patient and just widening our network, um, and of course, with Disrupt Africa support around our initial launch, we were able to to uh, get interest of some key investors, one of them being uh, an old pal of mine from Zimbabwe way back, Stuart Glynn, who's the managing partner of 1013 Investors in Chipper Cash. And um, along the journey, as he actually helped us with our business model and planning and other things, he actually started getting the interest of his own firm or fund to look at us as a deal, as their second deal in Africa, or at least an Africa-based operation like Chipper Cash. Um, so... As Stu and his team got interested more and more so, we were able to rope in other follow-on investors such as Finca Ventures, Optimizer Foundation, Mercy Corp Ventures, um, and a bunch of super angels uh, from Kenya, Nigeria, UK, Norway uh, to also come on board to, to help us fundraise. Unfortunately, cannot give the figure, but it, it is a strong uh, pre-seed seed round. Um, we were actually oversubscribed, fortunately, um, and we, we're looking now just to you know step on, on the gas uh, and, you know, continue to ramp up our customer acquisition over the next year across our key markets, uh, Kenya, Nigeria primarily, 
closely followed by South Africa. It's nice to hear that uh, Disrupt Africa was so central to the uh, to the round. Um, you're taking a lot of sort of in vogue checkboxes, so to speak, with the platform. Is that artificial intelligence, big data, the on demand economy? I mean, what is so innovative about the platform and what's so effective about it for, for your users? Um, so I'll say, Tom, um, what is interesting about our platform is the fact that it is designed uh, with the need of the, of the you know, former worker at the center of everything. Um, the services that we offer to the gig workers is bespoke to their needs. Um, and you see typically that a lot of people within the informal sector, and which is largely what we have across Africa, um, are not able to ad- approach traditional financial institutions um, to receive certain services. Um, solutions are not designed with them in mind. Um, so what we've done with our platform is to build uh, around their specific needs, bespoke financial solutions uh, to help them improve their financial well-being. Um, today, we, we, we are connecting to them um, off a WhatsApp bot. Um, of course, we will be releasing our app soon, uh, but the WhatsApp bot helps us to connect to them um, in, a, in a place where they are comfortable, on a platform where they are comfortable, a platform that they understand very well. And of course, through our connection to the gig platforms and the data that we receive from there, we're able to profile them appropriately. We're able to provide them services um, according to the profiles that we've been able to make of them. Um, so look, the platform is designed to connect to them at their place of work and improve their productivity over time. Oh, that's great. And we're seeing uh, surely more startups springing up that are servicing this this new economy. I mean, like off the top of my head, I can think of Flex Club in South Africa, like helping Uber drivers um, finance vehicle purchases and things like that. Um, how big is the market when it comes to address, addressing issues with, within the gig economy? And do you expect to see more startups operating in this kind of space over the next few years? Yeah, Tom, um, I think the, the word we use, I, I guess, uh, Sami and I is burgeoning, right? It's We believe we're at the right time and the right place. Um, and because of our experience across the continent and our, you know, our diverse team, myself, Zimbabwean, Sami, Nigerian, we, we believe, yes, competition will come up very quickly. Um, and actually, it is a wide space. Uh, estimated today to be about 7 million gig workers who work on online platforms, right, in various shapes and sizes, as Sami mentioned earlier. Um, and each of those platforms in our B2B2C fintech platform have different needs and wants. Um, we are primarily focused, yes, on the ride-hailing mobility space, uh, which we believe is a low-hanging fruit with a lot of fragmentation and challenges for financial service access to the platforms and to the gig workers. But um, we do see many other opportunities for us to expand this. Competition will come. I think companies will pivot and look at the space, but we believe our laser focus and niche allows us to be more agile. Um, And look, it's not the first time fintechs, both large, mostly large, and banks have tried to enter the space, but typically unsuccessfully. We think our focus, determination, and timing uh, will win the day. Uh, touch wood <laughs> um, and just continue to ramp up um, as and when we can you know always listening to the customer is super key um, how does it sort of work in practice in terms of um, scaling this solution I mean do you have to partner directly with let's say ride hailing companies like say Fodder or Uber and companies like it's very much sort of a building relationships with the ride hailing companies so primarily that's the model uh, our model is B2B2C um, the model is to connect with the 
the gig platforms and then through that connection be able to extend that connection to the gig workers off those platforms. And what the connection helps us to do is to be able to uh, source the um, required data, uh, enough data for us to be able to profile them appropriately on our platform. Um, then what happens from there is we start to build a relationship with them directly. Um, so yesterday we're B to B to C, but we see in our very near future uh, a B to C play. Um, and and to an extent, it happens naturally because you, you see some gig workers who are connected to a particular particular platform that you've struck a relationship with, uh, but are also working with other platforms. Um, and then through that relationship, you start to gather data on them beyond what they are doing with the primary platform that you you are connected with. So yes, today we are B to B to C with it, but we we see very clearly um, in our future that we will be pivoting into a B2C model. And again, in terms of scaling it, I mean, what's the primary focus? You mentioned there's plans for geographic expansion, but do you also plan to move into more and more verticals? I mean, where do you see the most potential for for growth from a geographic perspective or or from a different industry perspective? So so, so it's a bit of both, right? Um, Of course, we have plans to expand beyond um, Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa, Uh, but we see a lot of opportunity for growth just within the gig sector, you know, the gig sector is not just the online sector. There's also the off- offline sector. Uh, and the offline sector of the gig economy makes up about 80% uh, of that sector across the continent. Uh, so while today we're targeting the digital um, sector, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to expand and to go into the offline sector uh, and possibly be able to play a part in getting those people to be digitally um, registered. Um, so, yes, we are looking to expand into several other African countries. Uh, we have a natural food, um, we have a natural roadmap ahead of us, uh, based on what we're seeing, um, around the gig economy. But there's also a lot of opportunity for growth, uh, within the gig economy offline. So essentially just targeting the informal economy, uh, at large. Just, uh, finally, I, I, I like Ebali plays place within the wider. Startup ecosystem, because your two's background coming from from cellular, and it speaks to sort of the development of the African startup ecosystem. We have sort of people that worked for Series C uh, African tech companies now funding, uh, founding the new generation of, of fintech startups um, across the continent. Um, is, is that fair to say? Do you think that this is a, a develop, developmental comment on the African ecosystem? And like, are you taking things that you learn from your roles at cellular and applying them? with Amali Pay now? Yes, Tom, absolutely. Um, we, we're, we're privileged and fortunate enough to have worked right under the CEOs, uh, co-founders Bolaji and Ken in our times at Cellulant. Uh, we learned a lot around Pan-African business, uh, Pan-African payments and the landscape. A lot of challenges, a lot of solutions, a lot of ups and downs. Um, and you're quite right. We hope this is just the beginning of many other uh, mature fintechs where they can have offshoots um, of entrepreneurs who come out of there, either incubated out of the fintechs or being invested in by the likes of Settlement. You never know, our seed pre-Series A um, could come from such a company. Um, and I think, yes, it's just only the beginning. We're, we're super excited to have been backed by that organization. And, uh, and we truly hope that many other fintechs uh, you know, that have been around five, 10 years, the mature ones, uh, can also kind of start driving the ecosystem um, and, you know, investing in some of their top performers. So, 
yes, super exciting and stoked to see what what the next five years uh, brings for new fintechs that are solving new new modern age problems. Well, in eighteen months, when Cellular does invest in a Mali Pay in its Series A round, uh, you heard Disrupt Africa podcast or Disrupt podcast first. Um, thanks very much, guys, for. Uh, congratulations on the round and, and all the best for over the next couple of years we'll be keeping a, keeping an eye on how you get on thank you so much Tom what an honour and a privilege thank you we appreciate it from Nigerian fintech funding to South African retail tech acquisitions as we head towards the end of this bumper episode of the podcast it was a great month for exits in the commerce space with Cellpal being bought out by FMB and Parcel Ninja getting acquired by Imperial, a provider of logistics and market access solutions. An e-commerce enabler that offers South African online shops an affordable outsourcing solution for all their fulfillment needs, Parcel Ninja will help Imperial strengthen its digital offerings. I caught up with co-founder Justin Drennan to hear more about the deal and the South African e-commerce space in general. Justin, welcome to Disrupt Podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. You brought us just the kind of news we like in February. You've been acquired by JSC-listed Imperial. Congratulations. Thanks very much. I guess uh, I guess we got a, quite a bit of publicity. And um, good news, I think, is, uh, is sort of at this, at, at these, in these times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can you tell us any specific details around the deal? I think well, the, 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 the key information around the deal, um, so I can take you through a bit of the process. Um, we've been interacting with Imperial for a number of years, probably about two or three years. Boss chair, they came, came through to us and said that they'd re- like to re- have a look and see what we're doing in our business because they've been hearing that we've been doing quite good work. Um, in the interim, we've been spending quite a bit of time becoming competent in our last mile delivery business, uh, predominantly servicing the, the previously sort of unserviceable in that we deliver to sparser shops or the informal market. Uh, and this being a sort of a, a, a big challenge from a supply chain perspective is something quite unique to overcome. And the fact that we've done that, I think, um, stood us in good stead. And effectively, the Imperial guys came to, well, the Imperial team came to have a chat to us again, liked what we're doing. And we started through a process of, uh, of discussing what, what a unified business would look like. We ended up selling uh, 60% of the business to Imperial uh, with the remaining shareholders um, looking to exit over the next three years or so. Um, but Imperial is effectively buying the entire entity from us and uh, all of us will be exiting but remaining on in the business. So it's actually business as usual within the business, but uh, effectively shareholders changing, if I could say that. Is, that. is that what you're looking for? Yeah, perfect. Can you tell us any uh, sales numbers? So, like the, what the price was. <laughs> so I don't think they want us to disclose the pricing at this stage, but I think that's going to come out in the wash. Um, but I think what's important for everyone to understand is just the, the sort of model and how, how these, how our sort of business was valued, um, which is a combination obviously of uh, both profit and revenue are the key principles around that. So what they've looked to value their business is, is a combination of those two. Um, and depending on how, what we've seen in these sort of transactions is depending on how long you want to stay on the business, um, the opportunity to exit at, at greater value is there if you're willing to do the work and stay on a bit longer to guarantee that. And are your shareholders happy? 
I think in general everybody's happy. Yes, I think it's been a it's been a, a long road. It's well, it's been a few years in the past on your business. Um, our initial investor C five um, based out of the UK um, have been quite uh, have helped us a lot along the journey, which has been great. And I think that everyone's quite pleased with the exit. Which is it's, it's, if we if we weren't happy with it, we wouldn't have exited. Let's put it that way. So I think it wasn't like we were. Um, looking to exit the business or looking to sell into partners. But I think the opportunity with Imperial was just something that was too good to sort of refuse. We see it as a long-term partnership. Uh, we see them as adding a lot of value to our business. Um, there's so many components a large multinational can, can sort of bring to us and help us with. And we've already seen a lot of the, the benefits. So we, we're quite excited about what's happening and it's, um, it's, so far, it's proved to be rather fruitful. So we, we, we're very happy. So everybody is happy. How's that? <laughs> you can just go back to the beginning and just um, touch upon like how the relationship with Imperial actually started right back in the day. And um, yeah, just from a personal experience, like how was the, the kind of lead up, the discussions, the process, the working together till you got to um, the acquisition point? Okay, so obviously us being the supply chain industry or and and the tech business, we're quite uniquely positioned in that in that post COVID, uh, uh, it just happened to have become a sort of hot sector, if I can call it that. Home deliveries or deliveries in general became something that 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 was both prevalent and and critical to the success of businesses. Now your old school or more traditional uh, logistics businesses in South Africa haven't really been geared for home deliveries in that a home delivery was never a thing. It was a very small portion of the market. And when we started Parcel Ninja or the Parcel Ninja component about five, six years ago, the idea was always that home deliveries are going to become a thing. It's a matter of time. We've just got to be there and ensure that we're able to service those customers. So we're positioning the business as a long-term sort of um, we wanted to play ahead of the market and in the right channel and the, ch the right stream, I could call it, which is <laughs> e-commerce, home deliveries being a thing long-term. Let's just make sure that we're in that space. And then we went and built out our warehousing and distribution capabilities. And a few years ago, we ended up at having a chat with a company called Resolve, which is part of the Imperial Group. And we just took them through our ethos or, or our thinking around why home delivery is going to be a an important part in the future, how e-commerce is going to be taking off. And they they enjoyed what we sort of had to say and thought there was a transaction to be done back then. However, I think that a few years ago, a lot of the larger multinationals weren't really um, in a space to transact with smaller <laughs> smaller businesses. It's not something that they really, really did. Uh, there wasn't a methodology behind it. It maybe wasn't, uh, the board maybe didn't have appetite. And I think there was a, a, a discomfort with the valuation models that are used. So the, the more traditional businesses look at a different way of valuing businesses, which the tech slash startup scene doesn't comply with. And so there really wasn't something for us to be done there, despite us seeing, seeing big opportunities. Um, then, as I said, towards the, the middle of last year, uh, we got reapproached uh, by Imperial. Imperial had subsequently started a venture fund um, and had funding to to sort of acquire businesses and had a different ethos or methodology and and motive around wanting to invest in startup businesses. And I think that that the starting point there is to wrap your head around how to work with a startup inside a large organisation without these, um, let's call it like antibodies of the large organization coming out to destroy the startup. 
So I think it starts with that. Then it then it follows on with how to value these businesses, uh, how to treat the individuals within the business, how to add value to the business and take it forward from there. So we then interacted with the venture fund here um, and started having discussions around um, what the transaction would look like. However, the, the key consideration or concern that I had is while we're going through this process of negotiations or discussing the business and people learning the business and due diligences and and, and all the sort of compliance and regulatory uh, issues that you need to overcome, we still had a business to run. I mean, this was, you know, if I can call it mid-COVID, uh, our business was growing uh, probably 400% from a picking and packing perspective. And we need to make sure that our business was able to scale. And while you're busy scaling a business, you don't really have time to, to, to sort of interact and talk about deals all day. So we made use of a third party to assist us in that process, which I think was uh, a critical component or critical success factor in what we did. So we used a company called Benchmark International. They run what's called seller-side advisory services. So if you look into seller business, you need to get the pros involved because it's, it's not really what we do. And they came along and helped us with throughout the entire process from the legals, the financials, the due diligence process, and really took a lot of weight off our shoulders. Without having this third party helping you through the sale, I think the sale becomes a far more tedious and problematic process. At the same time, what we also appreciated was when we had a third party assisting us with the sale, Imperial and everyone knew that we were actually keen to do a deal. You don't bring in a third party to help you sell your business if you're not keen to sell your business. And so it, it gave the right sort of signal and intention that we did want to do a deal. And so it led to us being able to um, sort of cover a lot more aspects, um, understand a lot more, and basically allowed us to focus on the business while the transaction sort of took place. And then that all happened towards December time. Obviously, things were quite slow during December, and we finalized and finished off the transaction uh, in mid-end of February. Particular stumbling the other startups should look out for going into this sort of process? Stumbling blocks, <laughs> building the business, selling the business while, you, while you're running the business, and selling the business. I think, um, like I said, I think the, the, the key consideration we had is that we aren't experts in selling businesses. We, we haven't sold many especially not at this size or scale, dealing with uh, a corporate behemoth that, that, that needs a certain number of checks and balances, which is correct. And so the starting point was, I think the biggest, the biggest thing we did was, was employ a, as I said, sell-aside advisory services. So through Benchmark, I think is the, the, the key thing I take forward from this is if you're looking to sell your business, get someone to help you sell your business. They know how to, how to position it correctly. They know how to find the buyers for you. Um, they know about all the sort of warts in your business that you might not be aware of. They help you fix things in your business. And so the first thing I think is to become consciously aware that you may be incompetent in selling a business. That's the, the, the key learnings that we took out of this is that you don't know everything you need to know about selling a business. Get someone to help you sell your business. And at the same time, they, they can help you position your business or identify issues, which you might need to then go back and resolve before you can even put your business on the market or interact with anyone. So I think is to get it into the right position is critical, both from a, a uh, just a business process perspective, uh, compliance perspective, and then like maybe your business model or, or things around that. So I think those are the key considerations. And, and we found that, that even though we thought we had all of our ducks in a row and we were very, very compliant, it's still a fairly laborious process selling 100%. And you've got to make sure that you have all of your, all of your 
T's crossed and R's dotted while you're doing it. So I think that's one of the things. At the same time, I think the discussion around value of the business and, and how, to, how to come to some sort of uh, agreement around that was, was actually fairly simple. And I think that, that all that you really look for in that process is to, get, is to get some sort of relativity. In other words, are you being paid what is fair in the market? And then based on that, you can decide if you want to. So what I've learned is at the same time is when you go through this process, you can start going through the process, but you might not actually end up selling your business. And that's completely fine. So what, what you should do is go to a specialist to help you sell your business, identify all the issues, or, or maybe some things come out through the sale process that are just things that you didn't realize you needed to know about your business. While people are telling you how amazing your business is and they all want to buy it from you, they might convince you not to sell it because there's some things that, that you could improve on in your business and, and take it forward. So I think that, that going through the sale process has lots of benefits. I mean, don't do it unless you are serious, but things can come out of that process that uh, unintended consequences, which I think is also great. Um, so I think this, this, while there are stumbling blocks, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, upside opportunity in, in going through that process, the sale process. You publicly announced investment taken on was back in 2015. Um, it sounds like a simple question, but how have you managed funding-wise since then? Um, we've been talking investment previously. was actually shareholders buying out existing shareholders. And the business itself has actually been almost self-funded the entire way through. So, so even though there is investment in the business, that was to buy out shareholders. And um, we've been cash generative in this process and self-funded almost all the way through. Not always profitable in the year, but being self-sufficient and self-sustaining without additional funding from any shareholders. So we've kind of bootstrapped it ourselves and we haven't gone for that ultra growth, high spend mentality. We, we look to build the business in a formal, if I can call it a conservative way, where we try retain more equity in the business, um, use frugality as a method of innovating, coming up with new solutions, and it's, it's largely self-funded. Amazing. So what are the, I don't know, your top your top three tips for how to make that work or how do you uh, structure things to, to keep that a reality? Well, I think for us, we've always just had a mentality of frugality in our business. I think we, we, we always prescribe to the way that sort of Amazon has done their things. And it's, that started back when we started our initial business in Wanted All back in the day in 2007. You know, it was never fancy offices. It was never fancy desks. We used doors that were on their side with, with uh, <laughs> trestles underneath it. Uh, there was no business class trips. It was just always being aware of what the costs are because they can get out of control really quickly. So I think our first part is to always have this, this view of frugality within the business. Not, not to the detriment of the business, but just to be aware that if you don't need to spend the money on something fancy, then don't. There was no PAs. There was no someone else to book flights for us. We did a lot of things ourselves. So I think that's the, the sort of starting point of that. The second point, I think, is, is and I mean, this is touted all the time. It's, it's the, the old adage of hiring the right people. And I think we did that really well. Um, and, and with the hiring the right people, I think it was a culture sort of issue, a culture thing that we, we ended up building, which was a culture where we actually look after our staff. We never paid ourselves bonuses, but we always paid our staff bonuses. We looked after the staff in like a family kind of way. And it's difficult in a business because you need to choose almost, <laughs> whether you're going to run it like a hardcore business or you're going to look at it like a family. We chose the family route, which, which means we looked after people. If there are any, any personal issues, we helped them out. And for that reason, staff have stayed with us since the late 2000s and are still with us today. So I think, and they understand the business deeply, 
share those concerns, have this concept of frugality sort of deeply embedded in their mindset and also at the same time are willing to go the extra mile for the business, which I think is great. So then you don't don't need to spend money on things if, if people are willing to just help out a little bit extra when you need that. So I think that's the the second part. Just and the third part I think is is to just what worked for us is to to service is to make a plan a lot of the time and service big clients where you where you can. So so we decided that even though things were not core to our business, sometimes we'd have to do some things that we didn't really want to do, but we needed the money. <laughs> and so rather than go raise funds in the capital markets or try try get things from shareholders, we said no, let's just try and make a plan around this. Let's do something that we maybe don't necessarily, it's not core to our business and let's see how that works out. And almost every single time we did that, we were rewarded for it, fortunately. And we took the funds that we made from those other little side projects, put them back into our business and carried on building this sort of bigger machine. Because we always, as I said, we, we just reinvested year after year after year in order to build out this uh, sort of parcel ninja business and only really saw the fruits of our labor like last year. Broadly uh, speaking, what's your view of the e-commerce and logistics um, space in Africa at the moment? Is it progressing and are people right to be expecting a kind of big dawn of e-commerce success on the continent? Question is, you know, what is your measure of success? So let's start with that. So I think that I think that there is something happening with e-commerce in the same way that you needed some sort of not quite cultural revolution, but you needed some some key event to happen to order in order to shift the mindset to make it habitual. And we saw that in South Africa. I mean, if you think in February, how many people were using home shopping for groceries? Negligible. Almost no one. You go ask now, who doesn't use home shopping? <laughs> That's probably negligible. In other words, it's, 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 it's required this sort of COVID thing to change or to push us forward three or four years in e-commerce. With regards to Africa, that probably hasn't happened to the same degree that it has in South Africa. But at the same time, I think that, that Africa is building a completely different or diversified shopping experience. It's not the same as you find in Europe. It's not the same you find in South Africa. There's a far more informal trade. There's far more delivery on bikes. And there's a completely different sort of ecosystem that needs to be built out there. And at the same time, you need to find the appropriate products that are to service those markets. So I think FMCG and groceries, et cetera, are going to be quite well positioned in Africa. And I think that as those problems have been sold in South Africa. Some of the technology that we've built will make its way up into the continent. And some of the cool stuff that the continent has built will make its way down here. I don't know if you saw, um, Imperial's invested in a few sort of tech or startup businesses in Africa, um, which are quite complementary to what we do at Parcel Ninja. One of them, a, a company called Lorry Systems, which allows you to in sort of uh, be a marketplace for, for trucks. I think those are some of the problems that need to be solved. So, so before the sort of ecosystem kicks off in Africa, I think there's some fundamental issues which will be solved first. Then I think it's going to be this informal market delivery process. And then what e-commerce looks like, I'm not sure there. If it's going to be mobile phone, if it's pure e-commerce, if it's going to be ordering from the equivalent of Spaza shops, yet to be seen. All I think is that we need to be flexible and try to work it out. It's not... The problem is you can't necessarily take the crystal ball of the USA or Europe and apply that to Africa. It doesn't necessarily work that way. I think there's some bigger trends I agree with, but I'm not too sure that the shopping Amazon experience is what people are going to be using necessarily in the rest of Africa. And you've mentioned that in South Africa, uh, COVID has really changed habits. Uh, do you see those changed habits now being here to stay? Or do we think people are going to ultimately revert to I prefer to go to the shop, pick my own things, um, how things were before. 
I think it's largely, well, there's a few components to that. I think uh, the starting point is, uh, and I, I was just reading, people were talking about whether or not they're going to go back to office. And the analogy there is, well, if you're an extrovert, you're going to say, yes, we're going to go back to offices. If you're an introvert, you're probably going to say, no, <laughs> everyone's going to work from home. So it's, it's largely the lens that you start with. So I don't think it's going to be quite binary. So I think some people aren't going to shop in stores. I probably won't. I can't remember when last I went into a store. So I may be one example where I say, no, I'm not interested in going to stores. I'm comfortable with the experience as it is. I don't need to make hardcore decisions at the shelf edge because whether my avo is size A or size B doesn't really impact me that much. And I think that the food quality that we're starting to see in South Africa and the guys are starting to sort of manage that will make it better. So consistency is important. I think that that the delivery experience has gotten better over time and quicker, especially with the checker 60-60 guys. I think they've crushed it. Um, uh, so I think that as they expand, expand their skew range and make it quicker, it's just going to be easier. And, and I think shopping has become sort of, as I said, like it's an habitual thing for a lot of people now. And I don't foresee them having to go back. Why would I go to a shop and spend half an hour doing a shop, including driving, parking, or maybe an hour when I could just order that for 30 Rand? That's incredibly good value. And it's a, I don't think that they're going to go back to shop for grocery shopping as much as they used to. In certain other items, maybe fashion people might go back and just shop, but, but I would just order fashion online and try things on and send it back if it doesn't fit. So I think <laughs> that should be done. But maybe the experience of discovery might be something that happens in, in store, you know, some surprising and delighting customers, showing them something new. So I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was, but I don't think it's going to be the way it is at the moment. But what will be interesting is when we finished with this hardcore COVID experiment, what it looks like post-COVID, when people's kids can go to school correctly, when you can walk around without masks, when you can stay at home and work from home, what does what does shopping look like then? I'm not sure. But but I think for some people, this is what it's going to look like. What's the future like for Parcel Ninja? What's next? So it's been quite interesting for us is this um, integration into the sort of imperial machine, for lack of a better word, or family, let's put it that way. <laughs> and we've actually found it to be quite pleasant, which is... Which 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 was semi-unexpected to the degree. So we've actually been welcoming, which is great. And I, I mentioned this other day, I said it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose or a fire hydrant. <laughs> In other words, there's just so much coming at us that we're not too sure what to do yet because there's just so many opportunities. The Imperial team uh, are, are seeing so many opportunities to leverage our technology, um, have so many large clients that want what we are offering. And so for us, the key for it is just to scale the business in a sustainable way over the next period of time. Um, do what we've been doing just at a larger scale. Do it better. Not try to bring anything. Let's try not, don't need to rock the boat yet. We've got the products and we've got everything we need to do. We've spent the time building. Now we're going to spend our time scaling. So for us, the future is uh, the growth in e-commerce is the first one, which we think will just continue and we well positioned for that. The second is our Sparza distribution network, which we built out, which we think is, is massive and we've seen a huge opportunity there. And the third is our um, software as a service offering, which we built out in the middle of COVID, which allows for the aggregation of couriers and real-time pricing across multiple couriers. So if you can imagine a sort of hippo for courier, we built that out for, for businesses. So, so all three of those, I think, are well positioned for the, e the sort of e-commerce and home delivery sort of uh, next wave. And um, together with what we see in the Imperial, we think that there's massive opportunity for growth. And we're just quite excited to see what, what the future holds for us. But we're going to carry on doing what we're doing, 
And the way that we do it, <laughs> just this time with, with a big brother to help us out, I think. That's how we see it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Gabriela. Have a cool day. Hi there, my name is Peter Erasmus and I'm one of the founders here at Control Technologies. So who are we? We are South Africa's first digital insurance advice platform. We are a software as a service provider that has changed the insurance advice broker industry forever. Our software makes non-life car and household insurance advice easier and more transparent. We therefore allow traditional brokerages to become more efficient as well as create scale within their practice. Or we enable consumer-facing businesses with a large client base that wants to enter this market with a technology-enabled solution. Put in a simpler way, we provide an integrated system to our customers within weeks, which at the back connects consumers, brokers and insurers in a user-friendly way. Please contact us on our website at ctrl.co.za. Thank you. That's it for this bigger, longer episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And it brings us to the end of the second season, in fact. So we'll be taking a short break as we line up more great content for season three. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous editions on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other mainstream podcasting platform. See you next time. Bye. Bye.